What are the sounds that move you? A skylark singing in spring? A speech that inspires you to act? A voice that reminds you of home? Words and performance have been vital lifelines throughout my life. And in this podcast series, I'm exploring how language and speech have shaped all of our lives, our work, our identities. Words, English words, full of echoes, memories. So I'm diving into the British Library Sound Archive, the nation's largest collection of almost 6.5 million recordings that span the whole history of recorded sound. I'm in here with all of this and I can't quite believe my look. In this series, I'll be sharing some of my favourite recordings with you and some rather special wordsmiths. I'm Lem Sisay. Welcome to All About Sound from the British Library. You can't fight for the other rights and freedoms if you don't have access to your free speech and free expression. I am someone who tends to think that people should be allowed to speak and then we have to take them on. When did you last take part in a protest? Perhaps you joined a march, signed a, a petition about a cause close to your heart, joined a debate on social media, wrote to your MP, or read, indeed, an impassioned poem. You're right to do all of this. The right for your voice to be heard is protected by Article 10 of the 1998 Human Rights Act, Freedom of Expression. This means we're free to hold opinions and ideas and to share them with others without the state interfering. And in this episode of All About Sound, we're exploring how campaigners have used language to further their aims. We're hearing why freedom of expression is a human right. We're going to be hearing from poets, activists, writers and protesters whose voices live on in the British Library Sound Archive. People who have put their right to free speech into practice through political protest and artistic expression. Joining me at this listening party is an activist and lawyer who spent her career defending fundamental rights and freedoms. This freedom of speech and these human rights were paid for by generations long ago and they were paid for in courage and in blood. She's been called the most effective public affairs lobbyist of the past 20 years. They weren't designed to make us comfortable, they were designed to keep us free. Thanks for listening. An undaunted freedom fighter and the most dangerous woman in Britain. It's Shami Chakrabarti. Hello, Shami. Hi, Lam. Good um, to see you. I'm really pleased you're here joining me today. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on the recordings that I've chosen. I'm going to attempt to list some of your achievements. Uh, we might be here for a while. You're a member of the House of Lords. Uh, barrister and human rights activist, you were the Director of Liberty, a major advocacy group which promotes civil liberties and human rights. You were the Shadow Attorney General for England and Wales. And in 2014, you wrote On Liberty, an impassioned defence of fundamental human rights. So let's begin with you. 
In the acknowledgement section at the end of your book on liberty, you write, I owe so much to my mother for reading to me and my father for arguing with me. Words, expression have clearly shaped your life and as a result, the lives of people you fought for. How do you think reading with your mother and arguing with your father instill in you a desire to fight for the rights of others or how else did their actions inspire you? Well, um, that's very perceptive. Who reads books properly, let alone digs into the acknowledgement? So thank you, that's hugely flattering. Yes, I mean, my mother taught me to read. She was the sort of woman who, when she went to a bookshop and picked up two books, she almost weighed them in her hands and picked the thicker one of the two because that would keep her going for the longest time. And I can remember being taken by my mother to the library and getting my first library card as a very small person and the excitement and the affirmation that came with that. It was almost like citizenship, but as a very small person. And she read me storybooks, but also Ladybird biographies of Queen Victoria and Marie Curie. And so she, I think in her soft and subtle way, she was trying to inject a little bit of girls and women count too. My dad, on the other hand, didn't read so much, but he was one of these people who kind of talks as if he has. <laughs> but he was a great arguer. He had very, very strong opinions about almost everything. And so that was dinner table argument. But in both cases, it's words. So I probably think in words more than I do in images or anything else. And I think that probably comes from my mum and dad. That was the best answer I've ever heard for how somebody connects with speech and literature through their parents. Thank you for that. The organisation Liberty states that protest is a core pillar of any healthy democracy. And in the British Library Sound Archive, there are some incredible examples of this in action from all over the world. Let's start with the suffrage movement. Although the motto of the Women's Social and Political Union founded by Emmeline Pankhurst and others was deeds, not words, we're about to hear a pretty powerful speech made by her daughter, Christabel Pankhurst. In 1908, Christabel was sentenced to a period in Holloway Prison. And this recording is said to have been made on the 18th of December of that year, a few hours after her release. It's worth noting that it's an old recording, so you'll have to listen quite hard, but it's worth it. The militant suffragists who formed the Women's Social and Political Union are engaged in the attempt to win the parliamentary vote for the women of this country. The reasons why women should have the vote are obvious to every fair-minded person. The British Constitution provides that taxation and representation shall go together. Therefore, women taxpayers are entitled to vote. We have waited too long for political justice. We refuse to wait any longer. We are resolved that 1909 must and shall see the political enfranchisement of British women. Just to repeat part of what was said there, in case you missed it, we have waited too long for political justice, we refuse to wait any longer, we are resolved that 1909 must and shall be the political enfranchisement of British women. Goodness me. 
And isn't it powerful to actually be able to hear the voice? And that's a very clear recording. So presumably, thanks to digital technology, these things have been enhanced so that we can hear that in 1909 we will finally achieve this well as we know it took a little longer than that and in some respects if you want to think about the full enfranchisement of women and men I'm not completely sure we're there yet but um, to go back to the deeds not words slogan that you mentioned Lem earlier it's a very powerful piece of rhetoric it's a brilliant soundbite slogan almost as powerful as take back control you might say. But I would argue that in both cases, it's a sleight of hand. Because, of course, deeds, not words, doesn't really mean that, does it? No, it doesn't. What it really means is we want, you need to walk the walk. We want words and deeds, thank you very much. We want you to honour what you say you believe about equality and justice and democracy. And it begs the question, what is democracy? I mean, obviously, Christabel Pankhurst wanted the women's vote. She was not, I have to say, my favourite suffragette. I prefer her sister, Sylvia, because Sylvia wanted votes for all people, working-class men as well as middle-class women and working-class women. She had a rather broader view of democracy, and that's important because democracy is not just the right to vote once every four or five years and then be ignored in between times. And if that is the model of democracy, it won't survive. Because sometimes people come to power with sweeping majorities, dare I say it, Mm. and then renege on their promises to liberate people and actually shut down free speech, fair trials, etc., etc. So democracy is a living thing. It's an ongoing thing. It happens every day, not just every five years. And that's why the right to protest is so important. Because in my view, Christabel exercising her right to speak on the street with her suffragette sisters is just as much an act of democracy as voting. Powerful words. I think we need to listen to another pivotal speech. You might recognise this voice. I have cherished the idea of a democratic and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an idea for which I hope to live for and to see realized. But my Lord, if it needs be, it is an idea for which I am prepared to die. Of course, that was Nelson Mandela. It was an extract from his iconic speech made in April 1964 at the Rivonia trial, which led to his imprisonment. The recording was originally held at the National Archives of South Africa. The speech is considered one of the great speeches of the 20th century and a key moment in the history of South African democracy. What did you feel here in that? Well, it's incredibly powerful. It's a spiritual experience every time you hear from Nelson Mandela, perhaps in a way even more than when you hear from Martin Luther King, though they have you know, certain things in common, obviously. And in that speech, he talks about not wanting black domination or anybody's domination over anybody else. He genuinely believes 
in a human rights-based democratic society where people live alongside each other and people are humans first. And, of course, after that, he's incarcerated for all those many years. The, the guy's branded a terrorist, and we need to remember this in our contemporary moments when, you know, we're going to trash human rights because we don't want them to be exploited by bad people and terrorists and this. Let's remember he was branded a terrorist and now he's a 21st century secular saint all over the world, across the political spectrum. We need to remember that when we say that it's OK to scrap human rights because they protect a potential suspect or even terrorist people. But I would also say... Underneath, he must have been feeling so emotional and so anxious and so angry. And I know from my own much more limited experience and much more privileged existence that it's hard sometimes to speak clearly and calmly when you are experiencing a great deal of, of emotion. But, of course, with Mandela, always dignified you know, he's in the dock, but he delivers this piece of statescraft. I have cherished the idea of a democratic and free society. Which speeches have most influenced you? You cannot be someone who is interested in the art of rhetoric and communication without reading and listening to Martin Luther King. Luther King obviously made some amazing speeches which are legendary, but some are less well-known than others. Not so many years ago, I went to the University of Newcastle to give a talk about human rights. I was Director of Liberty and um, a very kind archivist there discovered a recording that had been buried in the University of Newcastle and it was a Martin Luther King speech. He had received an honorary doctorate from the University of Newcastle and he received it from the, the very white old patrician Duke of Northumberland and then gave a speech which is as beautiful and powerful as the I Have a Dream speech, but it's the Newcastle speech. And I remember afterwards at the meal saying to these wonderful people at the university, you have just found the equivalent of a new Shakespeare folio or a, a new... John Lennon... Uh, whatever. ...broadcast song. And, of course, now it is out there on the internet for people to listen to. So, you know, this buried treasure, this is the thing about words written and spoken, used at their best in a great art, and like other great art, they can convey emotion, ideas... Very powerful. You just summed up this archive programme. That's, that's what it is about. It's about digging into the British Library's archives and finding these golden nuggets. We will remember that there is something happening in America, that we are not as divided as our politics suggest, that we are one people, we are one nation, and together we will begin the next great chapter in the American story with three words that will ring from coast to coast, from sea to shining sea. Yes, we can. Thank you, New Hampshire. Thank you. 
I did not choose to speak out about social issues because I am a writer, but my writing gave me a platform to speak about issues that I have always cared about. I do not think that writers should necessarily speak out on political issues, but I also do not think that art is a valid reason for evading the responsibilities of citizenship. sticks slightly in the craw of a person who grew up in Birmingham to listen to people who don't live amongst migrants, who don't live in diverse places, talking about how difficult it is for communities who have to live in places of high migration. Well, it is not difficult. It is not difficult at all. It is a total pleasure to live amongst migrant communities. My husband is very concerned. He believes he may be the only person in the entirety of Birmingham not to have heritage elsewhere that allows him a passport in these testing times. Shami, in your book On Liberty, you mentioned the various debates you've been part of. For example, you write of sparring with MP Harriet Harman. Do you enjoy the verbal sparring? And if you do, then why is that? I think enjoy is the wrong word for sparring. I mean, sparring is by definition a slightly pugilistic thing, isn't it? I mean, sparring comes from the idea of jousting or boxing or whatever it is. I think in the political culture in our country, which is still very much modelled on a sort of elite public school culture, some people will thrive because it is so adversarial and at at times aggressive. And Mm. I think for me... Certainly as I've got older, I find the more aggressive aspects of some of this, particularly when it's contrived, right? If if we have a debate and I really said something that touches a nerve and I, I can hear you raise your voice, that is completely natural. That's a way that humans can indicate to each other and reflect a genuine hurt or a genuine indignation. The contrived indignation, the contrived anger, the more theatrical aspect is something that I have never really enjoyed. You know, it's theatre, it's not a real conversation. I think with some of this political debating in our current moment, and I think it does perhaps frustrate some people, it's just way too contrived. Right. And it's one thing to contrive a slogan... Uh, or even a written document and then unpick it. But when you hear people on the radio or see people on the TV and it just doesn't look authentic. You know, you played the Christabel recording from 1909 or whenever it was. In those days, people were standing up, speaking to large numbers of people with no amplification, no microphone, often no loud hailer, and they had to raise their voices just to be heard. And that is a great traditional skill that in a sense we don't really need anymore because even on an outside demonstration you can probably have a loud hailer or a microphone equally in the age of radio and tv a different kind of public speaking is required and over time people have come to expect a certain intimacy and authenticity Mm. so if you and i now have a disagreement in this discussion Mm. if 
we start raising our voices and that is amplified by the microphone, people are going to go, this is really weird because we're not in Trafalgar Square, we're not in Hyde Park, they don't have to shout to be heard, they've got a microphone, why yes. can't they have the reasonable debate in a reasonable way? And people can't hide behind the shouting and the soapbox. It's a much more intimate thing and you're in somebody's living room you're in somebody's kitchen and I think a different style of to some extent rhetoric and public speaking is probably required In 2015, you took part in a debate at the Oxford Union. You were proposing the motion that this House believes the right to free speech always includes the right to offend. I want to explore this motion by hearing a few recordings from the archive. You're about to hear an oral history interview recorded in November 1982 with Mr Kemp from Nottingham. He attended a meeting with Oswald Mosley, the leader of the British Union of Fascists, in 1934. Can you remember what Mosley himself actually spoke about? Full well, he wanted to dismantle Parliament completely and he wanted to form a dictatorship and he wanted to make it a fascist state. Apart from that, I can't remember the actual things. How then would you say that that speech, how was it received by the audience? I would say that the audience, they were new to this kind of thing. And I think that quite a lot of people that went to the meeting didn't understand what he was talking about, didn't understand his motives, were very complacent about it. Thanks to Nottingham City Council Oral History Collection and Mr Kemp for that interview. Like many recordings you've heard in this series, that clip was digitised as part of the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage project. Was it important that Oswald Mosley was allowed to speak? Probably. In the end, I am someone who tends to think that people should be allowed to speak and then we have to take them on. They should not be protected from those who heckle, from those who want to speak afterwards, from those who want to protest right outside the door or inside the door. Free speech is a two-way street, and that is the easiest thing to say and the hardest thing to practice. Wherever you stand on the political spectrum, we all love free speech, our own, and those are people we agree with. Now, Oswald Mosley was a fascist. He's a self-avowed fascist. But I think you can criminalise direct incitement to violence and very grave criminality, and I think you should. But I think that shutting down even very, very hateful and dangerous speech is, is counterproductive and it is a mistake. And even if I'm wrong about that, if it sometimes worked as a tactic in other places at different times for a moment... It probably doesn't work in the 21st century where everybody has a platform via the internet and so on. And so it's the counter-speech that's incredibly important. And also it's fighting the complacency by actually hearing what's out there and challenging it that is probably the best way for Democrats and people that care about rights and freedoms to, to prevail. 
I want to play you another clip now. You're about to hear from Lucia Fitzgerald, a member of the Gay Liberation Front. Lucia was interviewed by Dr Sarah Feinstein in 2016 as part of Manchester Pride's Out! Oral History Project. And she's describing the bold way the group got their message across in the 80s. And one of our strategies were this, was to go around all of the bridges that you had to drive in under to get into the city to your job. And we wrote on all the bridges, we're here, we're queer, and we're going nowhere. Lesbians are everywhere. And the gay men did the same. And so on the Monday, we did that really late on Sunday night. And on Monday morning, the whole town was in chaos. We could hear everybody doing this number with uh, on uh, leaning on their the horns on their cars because it was causing chaos because people were standing there looking at it and getting out of the cars to see if it was real on the bridge because nobody had ever seen anything like that. It was really brazen, but we didn't care. We wanted everybody to know we weren't afraid anymore and we didn't give a rat's behind. I was in Manchester then in the mid-1980s and saw that graffiti on those bridges. Thanks to Lucia Fitzgerald and Archives Plus for that recording. We're here, we're queer and we're going nowhere. Lesbians are everywhere. Is there something in keeping campaign messages simple? Now, now we're into high art. Right? We talked about I think in words and not in images, but when you can combine the two in such a creative and powerful way. Now we're really into activism as an art form then. I really, really think that. Now, if you think about bridges, they are just perfect. Metaphors as well. Well, they're, they're metaphors, and but function... No, they are metaphors. But if you think about bridges in the world and bridges in our physical world, they are ripe for that kind of campaigning art, aren't they? They are, yes. And you drive under... It's a billboard. It's a citizen's billboard. And what's lovely about we're here is, on the one hand, it is assertive and taking up the space. I am not a victim. I am an active person and I'm here. Get used to it. Get over it. But on the other hand, it's just such an expression of humanity. Of course I'm here. Did you think you can just imagine me away? Or I'm here, I'm in your family, in your community. But I really do think that when we get into great slogans and great graffiti and these wonderful creative techniques, which, of course, increasingly government wants to ban in Mm. our country, you know, peaceful dissent is... There's a new legislation going through at the moment. They they want to, to stop us chaining ourselves to railings and each other and all of that stuff. But I think that... That isn't just uh, words or campaigning. That is, that is true activist art. While clarity of message is key, I think it's time to explore another form of protest, poetry. This policeman keep on hitting me and pulling all my locks. 
him keep on feeding me only matted bookmarks. This policeman is a coward. Him get me from behind. Him can jail my body, but him cannot jail my mind. Like a bat from hell, him come at night, we work him evil plan. Although he goes to church on Sunday, he's a sinner man. Like a thief in the dark, him take me to the place where him just left. And when him get me in there, him is kicking me to death. This policeman, this policeman. This is called Power, and it's a poem which is considering both true and false power, which is considering the kinds of false power that are offered to some women in the world, but not to others. Power, living in the earth deposits of our history. Today I was reading about Marie Curie, she must have known she suffered from radiation sickness, her body bombarded for years by the element she had purified. First, they said we were savages. But we knew how well we had treated them, and we knew we were not savages. Then they said we were immoral. But we knew minimal clothing did not equal immoral. Next, they said our race was inferior. But we knew our mothers, and we knew our race was not inferior. After that, they said... You just heard Benjamin Zephaniah reading his poem, This Policeman Keeps On Kicking Me, Adrienne Rich performing her poem, Power, and Alice Walker with her poem, First They Said. Len, just to cut in for a minute, because it's embarrassing to talk about yourself and you're not that kind of person. You've performed your poetry for Liberty, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, many times over the years, as have these wonderful other poets, Jackie Kay, Benjamin Zephaniah, Akala, and so many more. And you know that poetry is at the heart of revolution and revolution at the heart of poetry. This interview's just gone to the next level. In September 2021, the British Library hosted a discussion over Zoom called Banned Books Week, Poetry in Protest. I want to play you some extracts from the events. First, you'll hear from Mian Marie's British poet Coco Thet. After a brush with the authorities, he left Burma in 1997, led an itinerant life and moved back to Myanmar in 2017. His poems have been translated into several languages and widely anthologised. We'll then hear from Dr Choman Hardy, poet and scholar known for pioneering work on issues of gender and education in the Kurdistan region of Iraq and beyond. The interviewer is columnist Kate Maltby. I was quite active as a student activist in Burma uh, in the 1990s and also as a poet, a semester's poet. We published illegal, you know, chapbooks on the campus. So that's how I was, I like to say, poetized and politicized, politicized and poetized at the same time. So I suppose the big question is, why poetry? Why did you become a poet? And how is that related to the experience of having to evade the censor, as opposed to different forms of artistic expression? Why poetry? Because in a very impoverished society like Burma, if you chose to paint or if you chose to do any other thing, 
in art, you would have to have number of accessories like paintbrushes, paint, and other things, right? But poetry, yeah. you don't even need paper and pen if you are a spoken word artist. Even refugee camps, they are into poetry and they choose poetry as a means of expression. Claire asks, and I think this is a key question, is poetry really an effective protest tool? Have you seen poetry make a difference to people's lives? I think it makes a huge difference. And I'm not saying that simply because I'm a poet. Um, I know that in communities like mine, where there has been successive traumas and one after the other, um, there's a tendency to become numb to events. In a way, it's a survival strategy. Your brain sort of protects you from feeling all the horrible stuff. But when it becomes a permanent trait, and sometimes that happens, a survival mechanism becomes part of who you are, it's quite tragic because it means that people end up actually not feeling. And when they don't feel, they don't react, they don't resist, they don't fight back. And I think poetry is wonderful in making you feel that sadness that you should feel. It's wonderful in making you feel that outrage that you should feel in order to take action. I've seen poetry being read by myself or others and people starting to cry and people saying, you know, I try to avoid thinking about that, but tonight I had no choice. And I think it's very important sometimes not to have the choice and to think about that sadness and to contain it and to maybe that will be the energy to push you to do something. Well, that's it, isn't it? We've now really gone to the heart of words and protest because we're talking about feelings and emotions, the feelings and emotions that should bubble up with injustice. So what's so special, I think, Lem, about your poetry and other political poetry is that we're now, it's almost music, isn't it? I mean, rhetoric and poetry can sometimes be quite close together, particularly very powerful rhetoric like Luther King or Mandela and so on. But we've got the rhetoric, we've got the ideas, we've got the imagery, we've got rhythm, we've got music, particularly when we're reading the poetry and speaking the poetry. And this is designed to move people because we're not computers and we're not robots, not yet. And so there is this feeling that you get when you hear a stirring verse, whether spoken or sung, gets to you somewhere deep down mm. and there's nothing like it and you will find this great poetry whether spoken or sung mm. in all the great protest movements throughout human history Suffragette Sylvia Pankhurst served various prison terms and in 1921 she spent six months at Holloway Prison. Her crimes, interestingly, were publishing anti-war articles in her newspaper, The Workers' Dreadnought. And during her time, behind bars, she wrote poetry. She drafted her ideas with chalk on slate and then reworked them with soft pencil on HM prison toilet paper. Concealed in the underclothes of a uniform, for example, whilst... Many a poet to his love hath writ, boasting that thus he gave immortal life, my faithful lines upon inconstant slate, destined to swift extinction reach not thee. She was saying that her words may not reach the people who they're meant to. It's an amazing story, isn't it, in Holloway Prison? 
smuggling the poetry out on toilet paper, the way that the woman is surviving. I believe they have value, like the same value as some great writer's work may have. There's something about the person turning to poetry Mm. for solace at a time of great need Mm. that makes it potent and it has meaning. When we we talk to, you know, people hear us muttering to ourselves... They kind of, you know, we walk around and we mutter to ourselves and people think, oh, goodness, what's going on there? But actually, when we write, sometimes we're writing for an audience that may never come, but sometimes we're writing for ourselves as well to organise our thoughts and our feelings. I, I think that's an example of that. The saying earlier on was deeds, not words. But I think of, especially through this discussion, think of actually words are the first deed. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I think that it's hard for some of us, it's very hard to separate our thoughts and feelings from words. And when we're talking about protest, as we are today, words of protest are deeds. So the message in the bottle, the poem smuggled out on toilet paper, the letters, the petitions, these are deeds as well as words. The words on the bridges. The words on the bridges. Because ultimately, whatever people say, humans are social creatures... If we're social creatures, we have to communicate with each other. How do we communicate with each other? Well, all sorts of ways, like other creatures, but we have words. The burning sun of Africa, the sky that's always blue. Apartheid and the past law for me, but not for you. We've heard powerful speeches, poetry heard from innovative campaigners. How have they affected the way you think of the right to expression? I think it cannot be separated. The right to free expression, as we have in Article 10 of the Human Rights Convention, in our human rights, it almost cannot be separated from just human dignity itself. We are not humans living a tiny portion of our potential if we aren't able to express ourselves, either because we're being censored or shut down or because we're not being given the pens and the pencils and the books and the access that is so important. And and we both know this from our own lives, that we can just be locked away, not prisoners in Holloway or Robben Island, but isolated people and therefore prisoners without this access to, to language, to words, to books, to communication. So that's the first thing about how important freedom of expression is. And the other thing is you can't fight for the other rights and freedoms if you don't have access to your free speech and free expression. And I return to to my central point, it's a two-way street. And everybody, particularly powerful people, they love free speech when it's their own speech. Mm. So they want, you know, uncensored newspapers, fine. I want uncensored newspapers too, but I don't want the activist on the street to be censored or arrested. And people talk a lot about cancel culture these days, Lem. So it's shocking, all these young people with their cancel culture. Well, I tell you what the ultimate cancel culture is. The ultimate cancel culture is being arrested and dragged off to prison for exercising your right to dissent. I have cherished the idea of a democratic and free society. 
And I think poetry is wonderful in making you feel that sadness that you should feel. It's wonderful in making you feel that outrage that you should feel in order to take action. 1909 must and shall see the political enfranchisement of British women. The audience, they were new to this kind of thing. And I think that quite a lot of people that went to the meeting didn't understand his motives. And we wrote on all the bridges, we're here, we're queer, and we're going nowhere. Lesbians are everywhere. Shami, it's been amazing exploring the archive with you. I've really enjoyed speaking with you and hearing your words, Shami Chakrapati. Which recordings do you think will stay with you? Oh, I think all of them, including the witness to the Mosley speech. We didn't hear the speech itself, we heard the witness to the speech, and that is something that should um, wake us from our complacency in present times. But the words on the bridges... That's the most creative street protest, totally peaceful, but so powerful. And again, these are times to be creative, but very active in our protest, I believe. And the library archive is just full of this buried treasure. And I'm just so glad that we have this opportunity to reveal it. We have to talk punk music because the genre is intrinsically linked to protest. Bands such as The Clash or The Sex Pistols use their lyrics to address issues such as unemployment, civil unrest, police oppression. And the song I'm going to play for you is no exception. Oh Bondage, Up Yours is a track by X-Ray Specs with lead singer Polystyrene. The track was released in September 1977. <laughs> Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard, but I think... Oh, bondage! Up yours! One, two, three, four! Our exploration of the archive has come to an end for another episode, but there's so much more to listen to. If you'd like to explore further bl.uk forward slash speaking out. And to see a full track listing of the archive and music recordings in this episode, do take a look at the episode description. This is a Pixiu production for the British Library. The producers are Katie Davis and Alex Watson. From me, Lem Sisay, goodbye. Thanks for listening.